apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air, and I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ... Who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life? This is the word of God. Please be seated. Sometimes in our lives, and not very often, frankly, there will be an event or a flash of insight that changes forever the way that we view things. And we we call this uh, a paradigm shift. Uh, My attitude toward babies crying on an airplane was very different after we had children than it was before. Um, I feel tenderness, not annoyance to them and for their parents. My, my paradigm has shifted in looking at the reality of a crying infant. Now, the great paradigm shift, of course, is when we become followers of Jesus. We see everything differently, and therefore we live differently. Sometimes a paradigm shift needs to happen to a church. Sometimes we need a fundamental shift in our perception of things. I'm not talking about cherished traditions that need to be let go of. I'm talking about basic understandings about what it means to even be the church. Not talking about making difficult but necessary changes in order to be more effective in a changing world. I'm talking about when God steps in to let us know that one of our driving assumptions, something we've just always taken for granted as true, being the way it is, being the way that God sees it, is just plain wrong. And sometimes God steps in to do that. And when that happens, it's pretty painful. Like surgery, it's painful, but 
necessary for greater, on the path to greater fullness. Well, the story of Acts chapter 10 and chapter 11 is exactly that kind of paradigm shift. God's stepping in. In this text, God forces Peter and then the church to rethink and then, frankly, discard and repent of a basic assumption that they'd had about what it meant to be the church, about being God's people. Um, Acts, you'll remember, tells the story of the progress of the word of God and the simultaneous growth of the church as the apostles and the early Christians testified to Jesus in Jerusalem and then Judea and Samaria and then ultimately to Rome. And what we might not, in our day, reading the scripture from so long ago, what we might not appreciate with all its force is the courage and the sacrifice that it took to bring the gospel of Jesus across certain boundaries. In Acts chapter 8, you might remember when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that the Samaritans, loathsome half-breeds that they were in the eyes of the Jews, that they had accepted the word of God, they immediately sent Peter and John on a fact-finding mission to check it out. And, and the Holy Spirit became so obviously present in the Samarian, Samaritan community that the Jewish Christians were convicted beyond doubt that this community of Jesus was not for Jews only, but could break down the dividing wall of hostility between nations and people groups and races of people. It was a major shift in the life of the church. The understanding that the gospel is for us and for them. Well, that kind of shift happens here in Acts chapter 10 and 11, when the gospel now first comes to a Gentile living in the Israelite land. And this marks a major shift, but maybe it's better to think of it as kind of completing the shift that took place uh, with the gospel going to the Samaritans. Having learned, they thought, that Jesus is for us and them, God now shows them that they still didn't get it. Jesus is not for us and them. In Jesus, there is no us and them. There's only us. Jews and Gentiles are not separate but equal. In Christ, we are one. But that shift did not happen without some turmoil. First in Peter, of course, and then in the church as a whole. The passage that I just read from chapter 11 is actually the end of the story that begins in chapter 10. And the story plays out over four different scenes in three different locations. Scene one is the first eight verses of Acts 10. It takes place in Caesarea, which is Rome's uh, administrative capital in the land. There we're introduced to Cornelius. Cornelius was a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment or the cohort and with probably several hundred soldiers under his command, he was a man of some influence and power in Caesarea. But though he was a Gentile, he was also a religious and a moral man. And so the Bible says, he was a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. And one day, while he was praying, something happened. Again, from the scripture, about the ninth hour of the day, about three in the afternoon, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror. They always 
They always do that when an angel appears. He stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now, Cornelius, send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who's called Peter. He's lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. That's the Bible's account. So end scene one. In scene two, the focus now shifts to Peter, who is in Joppa. Uh, at the end of chapter nine, Peter had come to Joppa. Tabitha Dorcas had been raised from dead. Uh, many people had turned to the Lord. And so Peter stays there for a little while for whatever reason. Um, maybe giving oversight and direction to this burgeoning new church. Well, Peter is still there in Joppa, and while the delegates from Cornelius are on their way, about a day's journey, on foot, Peter also has a vision. About noon, he's on the roof of the house where he's staying, and he is praying. And while praying, he becomes hungry. And while food is being prepared for him, Peter falls into a trance and has a food-related vision. How about that? He sees a sheet lowered by its corners from heaven, and the sheet is full of creatures of every kind, beasts, reptiles, birds. And Peter hears a voice that he immediately knows is God's voice. And the voice says, Peter, kill and eat. Okay? You're hungry. Here you go. And Peter's response is to recoil. Peter can't believe that God, who had determined originally what was clean and unclean, that God is inviting him to kill and to eat. And if Peter had even touched any of those animals, he would be, you know, religiously, ceremonially unclean. And Peter's still a Jew, remember, and so this would be abhorrent to him. So Peter's response is, by no means, Lord. I've never eaten anything that's common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. There's a... There's a tone of rebuke in that sentence, isn't there? The scenario is repeated three times. Peter, eat. Lord, no way. And then the sheet is withdrawn back into the sky. Now, by any account, that's a bizarre episode. And Peter thinks about it, but he doesn't understand it. But while he's thinking about it, the men sent by Cornelius arrive at the gate of the place where Peter's staying. And they call out asking, hey, is Peter, anyone named Peter here? And the Holy Spirit says to Peter at that moment, Peter, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I've sent them. So Peter goes down to meet them, introduces himself, finds out the errand on which they have come, that the Gentile, Cornelius, has invited him, Peter, to come to his place, Cornelius' place in Caesarea. And now the light begins to dawn on Peter, that, that, that the vision he's had, this word from God, to be careful about calling unclean about what God has said is clean, that, that this is linked to the instruction that he go into the, see this Gentile centurion. Gentiles were considered unclean. No pious Jew would willingly associate with a Gentile and certainly not enter his home. Not that they hated the Gentiles, though goodness, many of them did, but rather they held them in contempt as a lesser people. Not God's people. 
And Peter shows that he's beginning to get it when he invites the delegation from Cornelius to be his guests, first of all, for the night. The next day they start the journey to Caesarea and Peter invites some other Christians to go with him. When they get there to Caesarea, the most secular city in Israel, a city all about Rome and all about the emperor, when they get there, Cornelius is waiting to welcome them. And not only Cornelius himself, but his relatives, his friends. Cornelius has organized an event, and Peter is the main speaker. But Peter doesn't know that yet. And Peter says to Cornelius, in effect, you know how unusual this is. I'm breaking every major taboo by entering your house. But God's just shown me that maybe his taboos and my taboos might be different. So he sent me here, and here I am. What do you want? Cornelius tells his dream again, the vision, and then says to Peter, you know, it was good of you to come. Thanks. Now we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by God. And then Peter says, now I truly understand. God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. And then it gets weirder yet. He begins to tell Cornelius and his guests about Jesus. But before Peter even finishes, the Holy Spirit kind of drops on the group. And the Gentiles begin speaking in tongues. And Peter says, wait, I had a great illustration, a joke. You haven't given me a chance to. But the Holy Spirit does his own thing, right? The Gentiles begin speaking his tongues, praising God. And the Jewish Christians are stunned. Then Peter snaps his fingers and says, I know what this is. This is exactly what happened to us at Pentecost. And he knows now that this is God's salvation of the Gentiles. And Peter immediately orders that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And the implication of that command, baptize them, is that Peter considers full and, uh, sorry, that Peter considers the Gentiles full and equal members of the church of Jesus Christ and therefore as children of God. That is a huge, huge philosophical shift in the understanding of the early church. Staggering development. It is probable that the Jews to this point would never even have conceived the possibility that Gentiles, that Romans for goodness sakes, could become God's people. But here God unmistakably demonstrates that he accepts Gentiles into his own chosen people in Christ. Now, of course, as often happens in the Christian community, uh, it was such a staggering development that the other apostles had a hard time believing it. And the news spreads quickly as it did then and does now. So the apostles in Jerusalem then hear about, wait a second, what's up with Peter and Cornelius? And it's interesting that when they hear the news, it's interesting to notice what they talk about. The news, the news that comes to them is that the Gentiles have received the word of God. Okay, it's a bit of a technical term in Acts for coming to faith. right? When, when they heard that the Samaritans had received the word of God in chapter 8, same phrase. So when this news now comes to Jerusalem, they've received the word of God. Sounds like good news, doesn't it? What do they talk about? 
Acts 11. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. The circumcision party sounds like a fun bunch of people, don't they? They were Christian Jews who still thought that the gospel was not a matter of God's grace, but of our performance. Faith in Christ and keep the law, as represented by the law of circumcision. So they became known as the circumcision party. Later on, they were called the Judaizers. We read about them in some of Paul's letters. And they were a constant source of conflict in the New Testament. And they thought that to become a Christian, one had to become a Jew, because the Jews were God's people. And after all, wasn't Jesus the Jewish Messiah? And wasn't God the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and his descend- their descendants? So even if the Gentiles had received the word of God, that reality was overshadowed by the appalling fact that Peter had actually gone into a Gentile home and eaten with them. It's like having a membership meeting of the Jerusalem church and somebody stands up and says, I know that people are getting saved and their lives are being transformed and they've been filled with the Spirit, but what's this I hear about Peter actually having dinner with one of them? I mean, such a tone of accusation from somebody who missed the point entirely. And then Peter explains what happens, and that's what I read earlier. It tells the whole story. It tells a The vision, the animals, and the sheet, God's word to him to beware of calling common what God has made clean. Tells of the delegation from Cornelius, the angel's message that started the whole affair. Tells how as he'd barely gotten a few sentences out in Cornelius' house that the Holy Spirit has so obviously fallen on the Gentiles just in the same way that he'd fallen upon the apostles at Pentecost. And it led Peter to one inescapable conclusion. This is what he says to them. He says, look... If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? In other words, look, I know what we all assumed God thought about the Gentiles. I know what we all assumed about how we thought God wants us to relate to them. But God clearly showed us that we were wrong and I had to just go with God on this. And then when they hear the words of testimony from Peter's own mouth, God bless them. When they heard these things, they fell silent. What could they say? And then they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has repented, granted repentance that leads to life. Wow. We never would have thought it. God has given the Gentiles repentance. God bless those Christians that they could so easily conform their wills and understanding to the clear activity of God, to lay down their paradigms and bow themselves in the presence of what God was clearly doing. Again, a major moment in the life of the church. It was when the church made the conscious shift in understanding that this was more than a Jewish sect, but it was a global religion. The Apostle Paul a former zealot for the Judaizers, later missionary to the Gentiles. This is what he wrote uh, to the Romans in Romans chapter 1. The gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentiles. Before Acts chapter 10, the church did not know this. 
Or maybe they, they'd heard it, but they couldn't or wouldn't believe it. But after Acts 11 and verse 18, the faith community of Jesus became a largely Gentile community. And within 20 years of what we've just read, there were followers of Jesus scattered throughout the Mediterranean world in all of the major cities, including a large population of Christians in Rome. And even, even among the emperor's own guards, there were Christians. And because Peter and the other apostles... And the church leaders were willing to have their paradigms shifted by God. And because of that, we as Canadians with roots all over the world, we are able to worship here together as the people of God in Christ. The gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. What is the gospel? What is it that is the power of God for the salvation of all who believe? Well, it's a message. Acts 10, Peter says, As for the word that God sent to Israel preaching the good news of peace through Jesus Christ. 11 verse 1, the Gentiles had received the word of God. 11.14, Peter quotes the angel's word to Cornelius, send to Joppa for Simon, who's called Peter, he will declare a message to you by which you will be saved. When God wants somebody to be saved, he sends someone to declare and proclaim a message. And that's important. People need to hear and understand certain truths. That's what Paul meant when he wrote in Romans 10. How are they to believe in him of whom they've not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching? I want to pause just for a second. Have you ever wondered why the angel didn't just preach to Cornelius? I mean, he was there. Wouldn't the angel be a more effective messenger? Why would God make Cornelius go to all the trouble to send three men on a day's foot journey to get Peter... Who had to make another foot journey back. Well, God wants to use people, I think. I mean, God could do it without us, but he doesn't want to. He wants to include us in what he's doing. And there was something that had to happen in Peter as well. So Peter becomes a part of the story. But I think, and this is just me speculating. I think that an angel cannot be a more effective messenger of the gospel of salvation because an angel does not know what it means to be saved. What is the message? What is the gospel? Well, according to Acts, it's something like this. Jesus of Nazareth, in his life and ministry, was clearly authenticated by God himself as God's chosen one. Jesus was crucified, but was raised again to life by God. A resurrection of which the apostles and the other early believers are witnesses. Jesus is Lord and Savior and judge of mankind and forgiveness of sins is through him alone. And this is exactly what God has said through his prophets in the scripture. What we would know as the Old Testament. I think that's it. Five and a half lines. That's the message that repeatedly gets declared throughout the book of Acts. Now there's a lot more truth that we need to know. 
As we progress in faith, we learn about the Trinity, learn about the Holy Spirit, learn about the nature of the church, the practices of prayer and worship, of generosity, and so on. There's almost an endless depth of truth and experience to learn and to live. But the gospel at its core, the message that saves, is profoundly simple. And those five and a half lines are the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Everyone who believes. And that is the point of this text in Acts. The gospel is global. God's mission is global. God so loved the world. And the people that you are absolutely sure cannot be saved, the people that you believe deep down, even though, of course, we'd never say it, the people that we believe deep down God doesn't care for, Muslim extremists and gay celebrities and arrogant next-door neighbors and grumpy bosses. The gospel is for them. And that's exactly the kind of truth that got Jesus in trouble, didn't it? He is a friend of sinners, and that's a bad thing. He fraternizes with tax collectors and prostitutes and lepers. And the prejudices of the Jews made them refuse to believe that God loved or was even interested in the people that they themselves looked down on. Gentiles and sinners and you and me who are both Gentiles and sinners. And that's the real beauty of the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Now who does that leave out? Because I think we're tempted to leave out two kinds of people. The rapists and killers and profoundly, flagrantly immoral people. And ourselves. And I say that very seriously. There are some of you sitting here today who do not know, do not believe that the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ saves you. You say you believe it. You know that you should believe it. You know it's the right answer if anyone asks you, but you don't believe it. And you're trying to make up the gap between Jesus' life and death and resurrection and what God needs from you to win his approval. And you're trying to make up that gap through your devotions or through acts of service or being at church whenever something's happening here. And if you don't read the Bible or pray as much as you want to, you feel guilty because you feel like you're not doing your part. And you don't think that God was serious when he said, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You, you don't believe him when, you, when he says that nothing can separate you from his love for you in Christ. You don't believe him when he says that by grace you've been saved through faith, not by works that no one can boast. And we feel a lot of condemnation. We don't really know that God loves us. And we think, but usually subconsciously, we think that, it really, that it's really our works that push us over the line of salvation. And to that, Peter and Paul and the apostles in Acts would say, if you, if you throw yourself on Jesus by virtue of the death and resurrection of Jesus, you will receive forgiveness from God. That's what the Bible means by believe. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Did you ever notice in the gospels that when Jesus commends people for their faith, 
It was always when somebody had a need and simply came to Jesus thinking he could help them. It was never, it was never a theological conversation. It was never a doctrine-centered thing. The four men who brought a paralyzed friend to Jesus, he saw their faith. A centurion with a sick servant. A woman with a demon-possessed daughter. Another woman who'd bled for 12 years. They didn't have a well-developed theology. They weren't particularly religious or godly people. They were just desperate for whatever reason. And in their desperation, they turned to Jesus. And that is the essence of faith, to believe. Recognize our need and turn to Jesus for that need. And that is the crux of it all. For the gospel that saves is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you wonder why, looking at this text again, do you wonder why anyone at all had to come to Cornelius? He was a God-fearing man, we know that already, gave to the poor, prayed faithfully, and apparently influenced his whole family and at least one of his soldiers to order their lives under the reality of God. Surely that was good enough. What else did he need? He needed Jesus. He needed the truth about Jesus, the gospel. He needed to know who Jesus was and what Jesus had done. Cornelius needed to know that it was not his praying and almsgiving that made him acceptable to God, even though God was pleased by them. He needed to know that it was in Jesus that his sins were forgiven. Because the Bible says it's in Jesus that we stand in grace before God. That he who has Jesus has life. And he who does not have Jesus does not have life. The Bible says that salvation is found in no one else. And so what happened to Cornelius was that he moved from being a God-fearer, a genuine and religious man, to being a Christian. A life centered in Jesus. There's a lot of paradigms that get shifted in these chapters. Cornelius' understanding of being right before God. Peter's understanding of what he thought God considered common or unclean. The church's understanding of who the gospel was for. Who were God's people? And maybe especially whose church it was. It's not, they learn that this is not our church. God decides who the church is and what the church is to do. I want to close by asking this question. Again, the idea of fasting and prayer. If while you are in prayer, then or in general, if God was going to lower a sheet before you, who do you think would be in it? Who is it that you find you cannot love? Who is it that if God was going to say to you, I'm sending you to speak the truth of Jesus and to show the love of Jesus to this person or to this group of people, you might respond and say, surely not, Lord. Somebody who's treated you badly, maybe? Some race of people that you think you can't deal with? The homeless, the people on your street? God loves and is committed to those people. 
to that person. His kingdom is for those people. And Jesus demonstrated that, and Peter learned it. You might see yourself in the sheet. You might think, surely not, Lord. I know what I've done. I know the darkness in my own heart, even as a believer. I know this event in my past. I know who I am. I cannot believe that in my condition, even now, that you accept me. You may have to confess that and hear God say to you, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Don't you dare, don't you dare call unforgivable, unacceptable, or common what I have said is clean. Don't you dare. And don't think it's humility. Don't think it's humility. Because it's not. I remember hearing from Mark Driscoll at camp to say that to say that God can't forgive me is not humility, it's pride. It's saying, I know better than God knows. Don't do that. Don't you dare call common what God has said is clean and forgiven. That is a religion from hell. It is a false gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is this. Jesus of Nazareth is the son of God who died and rose again for our forgiveness. He is judge. Yes, he decides. But he is Lord. He deserves and requires our very lives in his service, but he is the Savior as well. So the Lord of all, in whose hands is a judgment and eternity of all people, he is the very one who died for us, for you, out of love and a desire to forgive. This is the gospel. And do we think that we will stand before the king of eternity someday and say, look, I know that you gave my life for my sins, but I brought along some extra currency. My religion, my morning devotions, my attempts at goodness, just to make sure that it was covered. Of course we won't do that. Let us learn that God has accepted and cleaned us in Jesus. If you believe in Jesus, you are accepted by God. There is nothing more that needs doing. And today, if you need to repent that you have sat in judgment over someone else, thinking that God could not, should not, or does not accept them, then repent. Repent. Open your heart. To God's expansive love for people and for you. Let him adjust your thinking. The gospel of Jesus is the power of God to save you. And we as the church are God's church. Not our own church. Let him shape who we are. Let me pray for us please. You're far more gracious than I know. And I could stand here this morning, and even though I'm talking to you, Lord, I know this is public, but thank you for forgiving my sins. And even the sin of often thinking that I need to add to what you've done, that sin is already forgiven, even though I tend to persist in it. For the grace and the mercy of Jesus, we are thankful. 
for the fact that nothing can separate us from your love in Christ, we are thankful. We are your church. Have your way with us. Help us increasingly to see things as you see them, to feel what you feel, to believe what is right, and to do what you would have us do. Not hindered by anything that we ourselves would cling to that is not from you. We cling to the scripture. We cling to the cross. We cling to Jesus. Lord, let us cling to nothing else. Thank you for your grace. You are the potter. We are not. We are the clay. Shape us as you see fit in order that you might be glorified and we be filled with joy. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Yeah, we have to. Hymn number 445.